He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now, he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. I pulled an all-nighter last night. I was on uh, Newsmax covering the Trump rally in Georgia, and uh, it went on and on and on, but it was so exciting. Uh, he really unloaded on Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, making clear that Kemp, uh, who's now locked in a Republican primary, uh, was singly responsible for all of the bad deeds the Democrats did on Capitol Hill this year because it was his decision not to call a special session of the Georgia legislature that resulted in two fraudulent elections of U.S. senators that tipped the Senate to the Democrats and gave them all this power. And it was nice to see Trump really lace into him. But, you know, as I heard Trump talk about the economy and how there was no inflation under him and there wasn't much crime and the the, the border was sealed and secure and everybody respected the United States and many feared it, I couldn't help wishing that he were here. I hope soon. Yep. Well, fake out. Uh, (laughs) Putin thought that it would be easy pickings going into Ukraine. Uh, he thought they'd just fold like they did in Georgia or like they did in Moldova and they did in Crimea. And he thought it would just be absolutely a cakewalk for his forces. And now he's learned something very, very different. And I think probably, I don't mean to put words in Vladimir's mouth, oh, no. but maybe he's singing this song. I wish I didn't know now <laughs> what I didn't know then. I wish I could start this whole thing over again. He looks like a fool in front of our friends, which means the entire world. And the real problem with Putin's uh, failures in Ukraine is that it shows everybody that the absolute core of Russia's claim to being a world power is a fraud, its military strength. Uh, Ever since the Red Army defeated Hitler, playing a much larger role in doing that than the out-Western allies did, we have always thought the Red Army was invincible. In fact, the doctrine of NATO was hold them at the line uh, for a couple of weeks until we can uh, get our forces over there, and then if that doesn't work, go nuclear. In fact, the U.S. has refused to agree to no first use of nuclear weapons because of our fear of the Red Army. Some Red Army, my God, a bunch of drunken kids who don't know where they're there and don't want to be there. They're not well-read. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that was good, right? That injection was from <laughs> Douglas DePiro, artist, sculptor, oh, um, lyricist, apparently, poet, certainly. Lyricist. Yeah. <laughs> lyricist. Anyway, Douglas, thank oh, you. That was good. Um, yeah, they are not a well-read army. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got to call them from now on. Yeah. The not well-read <laughs> Right. The guys I've been talking to who are really expert in the military situation in Russia and in the U.S., say the training of American soldiers is unbelievable. They say it never stops. And most of the soldiers are career because it's an all-volunteer army. And they go through months and months and years of instruction. And the result is that they are proficient as hell at operating the high-tech equipment that they're being given. Whereas the Russians are draftees, they're conscripts, they serve for 12 months and then they're out. Uh, Only the idiots get drafted. Everyone with brains ducks the draft. And and, and they get like three, two months of training, hand them a rifle and a uniform and say, go shoot somebody. Um, And there's no comparison between the professionalism and ability of the American army and the Russian army. Great to know. These kids don't even know why they're there. They don't know, didn't know they're being sent to combat. 
and their ability to do anything other than just drive straight ahead and fire is very suspect. Uh, there's no coordination between air and ground, uh, no logistical preparation, no, uh, no understanding of advanced tactics, whereas the U.S. troops are incredibly well-trained. And that difference is becoming very apparent, not just to us, but to the entire world. Uh, Russia is the big hoax. And by that, I don't just mean Trump's communication with Russia is the big hoax. I mean the Russian army itself is the big hoax. And regardless of what happens in Ukraine, regardless of the future of that brave country, Russia's jig is up. The, uh, the, the mask is off the emperor. Everybody knows he has no clothes now. And the Russian ability to bluff anybody or to, to, to fake anybody out by believing that they have a strong military is basically gone. And that is a price that is enormously dangerous for Russia. They can't afford to do that. Certainly not when they're sitting on top of a powder keg of 186, count them, different nationalities that are subsumed within Russia, almost all of whom share one thing in common. They don't want to be there. They were conquered by Catherine the Great and by Peter the Great, uh, terrified by Ivan the Terrible, held on to by Stalin, wow. uh, and, uh, and now Putin is supposed to hang on to this empire. And he is going to get challenge after challenge after this because nobody is afraid of him at this point, and nobody should be. Um, now, the issue always is with him <laughs> that if he gets desperate, does he go nuclear or chemical weapons? Not biological. Nobody's going to do that now after COVID, but chemical or nuclear. <clears throat> and there's this perverse thing happening. The apologists for Russia, who were like Tucker Carlson of Fox News, who were saying, oh, God, don't, don't antagonize Russia. They're too strong. They're too aggressive. Uh, it's horrible to, to do that. Uh, are now the people who are saying, well, we've beat, you've beaten Putin, but don't rub his nose in it because he'll go nuclear or he'll blow up the world. And he's a madman, and you have to, you have to take that into account. And uh, there is a proposal that's been made by my friend John Jordan, who appears with me regularly on Newsmax. He's brilliant. Who is a former U.S. naval intelligence. And he makes the point that he's fluent in Russian and spent his lifetime studying the Russian military for U.S. Navy intel. And he makes the point that Putin does not himself have the nuclear codes for Russia. Uh, his people do, his staff, his security apparatus. And it's not just some guy toting around a football like, like the president has. I remember the first time I met with Clinton um, in the, in the uh, residence as president. He, uh, I sat and there was this bag there and he said, just push it aside. I said, is that the nuclear codes? And he <laughs> said, yeah. <laughs> so He was kidding, though. No, he was not. Oh, come on. <laughs> he was not. And you kicked it. Yeah, I kicked okay. it. Didn't yeah. go off, though. Oh, good. Thank God. <laughs> we're, we're still here. Good. Thank you. But but the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But um, it, it, Putin has to rely on a chain of command to give these orders. And in this era where war crimes are prosecuted vigorously. And a guy like Karazdik, we, the Bosnian Serb leader, we pursued to the end of the earth. I mean, we haunted this man's life. He deserved every bit of it. But war criminals uh, can't live on the planet. They can't live openly. They have to hide. They're like Adolf Eichmann used to be, in terror and fleeing for their entire lives. So Jordan says, make them famous. Take the 10 or 15 guys that would have to sign off on a nuclear attack, the commanders of tactical nuclears, the ground commanders, the strategic commanders, the security services, Putin's aides, and make them famous. Put their names and their photos on television and make clear to them that we're coming after you. If there is a nuclear attack, you are going to be responsible. That's great. And, and, it's, and, and you really have to take individual responsibility for what you're doing. Someone's watching.
It makes all the difference in the world if you're world famous. You know, your poster is on, in effect in every post office and hmm. in the country. Um, it, uh, Hillary used to say she wanted more visibility, and I told my wife, Eileen, yeah, she wants to be in every post office <laughs> in the country. <laughs> the way she's going, she'll manage. Yeah. But um, they, you can publicize these guys' names and give out their photos and put them on screen. There was a step in that direction last night. Uh, Newsmax, which I told you I was on, put up the photo of a general blah, blah, I don't know his name, but I will, who was responsible for the gas attack in Syria and responsible for bombing the town in Ukraine, in western Ukraine. And uh, they and they put his photo and his name on TV. And I think we need to do more of that so that we hold people individually accountable for what they do. And we tell them, we're watching you. We're coming for you. If you approve of the use of nuclear weapons, we don't care if you're just following orders. That Nuremberg excuse won't wash. Uh, we are going to hold you personally responsible. You'll never be able to have a bank account anywhere. Anyone that gives you shelter will be harboring a fugitive. Uh, your assets will all be seized. Uh, you will be persona non grata in any country in the world. Uh, and it'll, it'll, and if Putin ever loses power, you are, you are absolutely cooked uh, because we'll come after you into Russia and drag you out by the scruff of your neck. So this is a very potent weapon in today's world, and it's something that we ought to mobilize and ought to use. What a great concept. The whole idea of it is amazing. It's, it's the extension of the concept we talked about last week with sanctions, with uh, economic sanctions, not just against a country or regime, but against an individual guy. Drill down to the individual and then sanction them and come at them with the full force of international law. Now, in the past, this didn't amount to much because the the uh, UN machinery that implements this was very bureaucratic and very slow and all, all of that, but not anymore. After the uh, after Bosnia and Serbia, we really retooled the International Criminal Court, and it's a very effective vehicle for dealing with war criminals. Now, I don't like the International Criminal Court for civil lawsuits. They're trying to use that to denude, to denude the United States and take away our military. But uh, when it comes to war criminals, it's a very effective tool. So I think that that if Putin's back is to the wall, uh, I think he's going to be in very serious shape because I think that there will be real constraints on his use of any nuclear weapons or any chemical weapons. Russia just is forfeit if it does something like that. This is the Dick Morris Show on 77 WABC. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Something big is going on in Moscow right now, and uh, you can't tell what it is. Because they're, uh, the, you know, the Kremlin is so blacked out, and it's so hard to find out what's going on. But the, uh, but the two key people in the Russian government uh, connected with this war have basically gone missing. They haven't been seen in action in days. Uh, they are Valery Gerasimov, G-E-R-A-S-I-M-O-V, Gerasimov who is the head of the Russian general staff, and Sergei Shoimu, Shoigu, S-H-O-I-G-U, Shoigu, who is the defense minister. And these folks who normally appeared in public constantly, like, you know, Rumsfeld did during the Kuwait war, uh, have just disappeared. Uh, one of them surfaced for a few minutes about two or three days ago, but nothing since then, and the other hasn't been seen from for four days. And there is a lot of speculation that the Russian military and government is being, shooken, is being shaken up by their failures in Ukraine and that there is a total change going on in Russian strategy in the war in Ukraine. 
And that's, that change is that they basically realized they cannot capture Kiev or Kiev, the capital of the country. They've been trying for the whole war for 30 days, and they were, they were about 15 miles away from the center, and then they got thrown back now to 40 miles from the center. That's a beautiful thing and, right there. And their strategy, which is not so beautiful, is to bomb the hell out of it mm. and try and accomplish by terror mm. uh, what they weren't able to accomplish by military force. And the, the, and the, the speculation is that Russia is switching its goals in Ukraine, cutting back its goals, so that it's no longer deploying its troops primarily in an effort to decapitate the government throughout Zelensky and put it in puppet regime. But instead, they're retreating to the eastern portion of the country called Dumbass, which is the Dumb River Basin, Dumbass, uh, where there is a significant Russian population. Not a Russian-speaking majority, but a large minority, probably a third or 40 percent. And they're hoping that they can make a stand there and that they can have enough of a military presence to be able to argue for separation from those provinces and incorporation into Russia. Uh, I think that ultimately the answer to that is going to be a plebiscite um, with a vote of the people uh, supervised by the UN so that they can choose whether to be independent or to be part of Ukraine, which I think Ukraine will win based on the polling that I've seen. But uh, it's clear that Russia is changing its priorities. You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want And it's clear that they can't always get what they want and that they are not going to be successful in overthrowing Ukraine and destabilizing it massively. Now, that poses an interesting question for the United States and for NATO. Uh, Obviously, if there's a serious threat to the existence of Ukraine and a Russian invasion to take it over and maybe it into a satellite, a puppet state of Russia, that destabilizes Europe. It poses a threat to every Western country, and we need to take action. And the action we've been taking is very good. The massive supply of material and equipment and uh, what we did before under Trump, which was to train the Ukrainian army. I ought to mention when I spoke about the difference between the American and and Russian forces, that one of the reasons the Ukrainians are so skilled at warfare is that the U.S. under Trump sent military trainers in. There was one of them on TV last night on Newsmax being interviewed, who trained the pilots and trained the tank commanders in warfare and set up a very efficient and very effective military there. And that's what's coming through now in defeating the Russians. Um, but the, the problem is that if, this, if Russia basically pulls out of Kiev and goes into Donbass, what does the U.S. do? Now, pulling out of Kiev is not going to be easy. The Ukrainians aren't going to give them a, a free pass. Uh, withdrawing 100,000 troops from one area and moving them under enemy fire to a place 100 miles away is very difficult, and particularly when you do not have air superiority. as as They, they have superiority, but not supremacy. And <clears throat> I think that that's very difficult. It's going to be a lot of casualties and a lot of Russian blood spilling over that, and I think that that's going to hurt Putin. But assuming he gets there, and assuming he's able to say, look, this war is now about Dumbass, and uh, let them have their independence and I'll go home. And uh, the uh, Russian resistance that's been fighting in Dumbass ever since 2014 might back that up and say, we want to be independent, give us our independence, self, self-determination. At that point, I think the U.S. should demand a plebiscite and demand that the people have a role in making that decision. And unlike in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and um, Wisconsin and Arizona, we can assure an honest ballot (laughs) by having uh, UN observers supervising the election process. Unlike how many states? (laughs) The swing states. (laughs) We can assure an honest ballot and a fair count. And uh, I think that's something we might want to consider doing. 
So you can't always get what you want. And Putin, I think, is beginning to realize that. Now, while that's happening, we have a president who is becoming a total embarrassment, a uh, total embarrassment. Uh, I mean, he was in Poland uh, the other day, yesterday, and he committed three huge gaffes. Hello. Number one, he was addressing troops about to be sent into Poland or who were in Poland. And he said, when you get to Ukraine, you're going to find women and children being savaged and being uh, killed, and you'll be shocked at what you see. <laughs> the one problem is we have made a decision not to invade Ukraine, and our soldiers were never going into Ukraine. And by saying they were, was he sending a signal to the Russians? Was this a coded order to our military? Uh, was this some change in American policy? No, it's just the president being dumb, bumble, bumbling, bumbling. Uh, and then the it. and then the second thing he said was that he said that we have to get this guy out of power, meaning Putin, get him removed. And it is not U.S. policy to encourage regime change in Russia. Regime change is is a very polite word for something horrible. That means basically fomenting a revolution and uh, and moving in with military means to take the guy out. Mm. Uh, a previous previous inhabitants of that throne are Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, and you know what happened to them. And if Putin feels that's what he's staring in the face, well, why not use nuclear weapons? Yeah, right. I mean, my life is at stake. Why not do that? And uh, the and Biden stupidly, stupidly opened the door to that. There are nine words which he said which will resonate throughout the world. And thirdly, he said that if Russia uses chemical weapons, we will reply in kind, which means we'll use chemical weapons too. As a moron. We're not using chemical weapons, Mr. President. We've made that decision. We are not. We're committed to not using them. With our strength in our conventional military and their weakness, there's no reason to use them. And uh, by saying that we are going to use them, you're undermining our moral authority. So this guy just keeps stumbling from thing, policy to policy, statement to statement. Every time he opens his trap, he gets us and him into trouble. Bumbling, bumbling. Boy, Donald Trump. Oh. Wouldn't do that. Oh, please vote for the guy. Yeah, we don't want to have to deal with this for three more years. And his vice president is no better. Uh, she goes to Poland and she says, literally, I'm quoting her, Russia is a big country. And Ukraine, its neighbor, is a smaller country. Like and Sesame Street. big country, Street. Russia, is trying to gobble up the smaller country, Ukraine. Um, it's like un- she's talking on Sesame Street to the little kids. So I have a proposal for her new campaign song. I don't know much. <laughs> but I know how to love you. And that may be. All Kamala needed to know. All she needed to do was to come on to Biden and say how much she loves him, and the idiot put the idiot on the ticket, and now they're, more, they're idiots squared running for office. Unbelievable. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority PriorityGoldGuide.com. This is the Dick Morris Show on 77 WABC. 
Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Let's be clear about why Kamala Harris is where she is. We all know that she's there because she, Biden said that he was going to name a black woman as vice president. And we all know that his first choice was Michelle Obama and that she announced she wasn't going to run. And he was stuck with this pledge. And the only one he could dig up who he could support was uh, Kamala Harris. They probably wanted him to support Stacey Abrams, which thank God he didn't do. But Harris was available. She was the she was a woman senator. Well, how did she get to be senator? She had been attorney general. Well, how did she get to be attorney general? She befriended. That's the polite word. That's the <laughs> socially acceptable word. Oh. Willie Brown, who was the speaker of the California State Assembly, and was has admitted that he had an affair with her for many many years. And because of the closeness of that relationship and because of whatever went on in that relationship, she got the attorney generalship out of it. And then Willie Brown, who basically controlled the Bay Area, the San Francisco-Oakland area, uh, was so strongly in her favor that she basically had no serious challenge for attorney general. And when she ran for Senate, uh, she had the primary fixed for her by... Willie Brown, nobody else was really able to oppose her. And it's a one-party state. But she's so smart. And up she walked from, from, from person to person and, uh, and climbed her way up uh, into the vice president's. <laughs> climbed. Don't know much about history. Climbed her way up. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. So give me a call and let's talk about all we've talked about. Uh, 800-848-9222-848-WABC. Let's hear what you have to say about it. Let's go to Stu in Brooklyn who piqued my interest by saying his call is about the charge of the light brigade. The history lesson will follow. Hey, Stu. Hey, good afternoon, Dick. The uh, charge of the light brigade took place in the Crimea, and in the movie with Errol Flynn, one of the last scenes is apropos. I wish someone would edit it. But in that scene, Errol Flynn is exhorting the men to uh, the villain is on the opposing field with the Russians, and he says... Let no one who has killed women and children live to boast about it. Show them no mercy. I would love to see that edited with the uh, villain changed to Putin <laughs> and the massacre location changed to Maripol. It would get a billion hits. That's cute, too. Let somebody do that. Uh, Charge of the Light Brigade. Can't resist myself. Uh, Charge of the Light Brigade was uh, in the Crimean War which was basically Britain against Russia. And, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, Britain uh, against Russia, with Turkey siding with Russia. And uh, the goal was to conquer Constantinople, which is current-day Istanbul. And uh, in the course of it, the British cavalry, called the Light Brigade, horses, uh, made the most famous and last cavalry charge in history. And it was all it was supposed to be the ultimate weapon, horses running quickly and men with sabers. And uh, they didn't take account of a little thing called the rifle. <laughs> and the, the uh, Russians and the Turks just sat back there and picked them off one after another. And Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem immortalizing it, saying, um, Onward, 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 half a league onward. Cannon to the left of them, cannon to the right of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Onward they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. And uh, one of the lines in it is, little did they know that someone had blundered. And uh, it was just so clear. This was a total wipeout. 
And uh, it's interesting given the, the citation here about the Ukraine. Um, so let's go to Dan from Dallas. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mr. Morris. I really like your show. Thank you. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I just want I wanted to make one comment. Uh, I think uh, Turkey sided with uh, Britain in the Crimean War. Yeah, but you're that right. Does it you're mean, right. Does it mean? Um, yeah, I, right. I think uh, what I'm what I'm curious to know is uh, Belarus. Good for you, by the way. Why can't <laughs> why can't we uh, why can't we attack Belarus just like Russia attacked uh, Ukraine? We can use Belarus uh, as a counter. Like when you play chess, you know, if there's a, a king side attack, you typically players counterattack on the other side, on the queen side. So instead of uh, you know Ukraine, why don't we? Uh, you know, get into Belarus. They have no treaties. They're basically Russia's puppet. So that'll probably well, teach Putin unlike, not to... Uh, unlike the chessboard, uh, when you invade a country, there's real blood on the board and uh, and real deaths. And the United States of America does not invade anybody. Uh, we, If we're provoked, if something is going on and we have to defend uh, freedom somewhere, we often go in, but... We do not start wars. We do not invade anyone, and uh, and it's and, and we can't start that now. Um, Belarus, as with Russia, will fall of its own accord because they have no economy. Uh, they have no ability to survive other than aid from Russia. Let's understand something basic about the Russian Empire. It's the first empire in history that costs the the empire holder. Money. It's the first empire in history that makes the host country poorer, not richer. Used to be richer. You controlled the country. You controlled their trade. You took their products. You took everything they did, and you kept it for yourself, and you didn't have to pay for it. Now, the countries you're occupying, the people stop working. There's no production. Uh, They used to say in Russia, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Uh, we pretend to work and we don't. We just show up at the factory floor and, you know, smoke and drink. And um, they pretend to pay us. They pay us in rubles that are worthless. And even when they were worth something, uh, we couldn't spend them because there was no merchandise in the stores. And the merchandise there was in the stores was in the stores only available to Communist Party apparatchiks and officials. So we pretend to they pretend to pay us. And we pretend to work. And that's all fine until you have to feed the population. And what Russia has had to do is to subsidize its satellites massively. And the reason Gorbachev got rid of them is he couldn't afford to have colonies. It's a little bit like the slave economy in the South. When cotton prices were down, the slave owners couldn't afford to feed their slaves. And uh, and it, and the, the economy was in danger of imploding. So... So basically, we don't need to invade Belarus. And also, we're doing just fine without our troops and with uh, Ukrainian troops doing this. They're carrying this war. And let them continue. I think it's just fabulous. Let's go to Mike in uh, Stanford. Dick, how are you? I'm great. Um, uh, we, great. We know each other. I went to law school with Eileen. I hope she's doing well. What, what's your um, last name? Jahemchuk. Okay. You went to Quinnipiac with her? Yes, I did. Uh, we were in a class on, on media law. Okay. Um, I, yeah. And I, what I wanted to, to mention something, I correspond with people in Ukraine, which you can still do despite the invasion. Okay. And a friend of mine in Odessa was telling me that, you know, the internal, the soldiers, the internal forces there are so good. What they're able to do is, you know, there's concern with so many ethnic Russians in Ukraine that there might be a fifth column in that. They're going in, they're able to check everybody's cell phone, and right away they can tell who they've been talking to, where the broadcasts have gone to. So there's there's no possibility of any kind of fifth column or anything like that. In fact, the Ukrainians themselves might pick up a lot of valuable intelligence from that. Mm -hmm. I've been wondering why the Russian minority in Ukraine has not been acting out uh, in defense of Russian troops and against Ukraine. I've come to the conclusion that they don't really want to be part of Russia, that they want to stay in Ukraine and that they want their rights to speak Russian but not uh, to take over the country. Is that your impression too? 
my impression, well, not only that, another friend uh, that I correspond with who is an ethnic Russian, she's spending her evenings after she works in a beauty salon. She goes out and helps make Molotov cocktails just in case they need them. Beautiful so Molotov yeah. cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, goes, she goes home for a drink after work, <laughs> and she doesn't order martinis. She orders a Molotov, a Molotov cocktail. Oh <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, go ahead, please. Oh. Listen, they know they live better in Ukraine than they would if they were living in Russia. That, yeah. That's the impression I get. Yeah. And I, you know, like I said, I talked to about 15 people, and that's certainly not what you'd consider a, a good amount of people for a poll or anything yeah. like that. But um, but I, I think it's pretty representative that, uh, you know, that, that, look, they're living better. And, and, look, their patriotism is towards Ukraine and not towards Russia. Right, right. I think that's true. Thank you very much for calling, Mike. And uh, I will. Uh, I'll mention to Eileen. Uh, she'll say hi to you. Um, let's go to uh, Jay in Ohio. How you doing? Doing great. Listen, I, I think that um, Putin has to continue and occupy Ukraine. And the reason why I'm saying that is because of all the losses that he's also he's already incurred, and he's got to take Ukraine. And yeah, but he can't. He can't. It's not that he doesn't want to. He's thrown 100,000 of his troops into that. Uh, about 70% of Russia's battle-ready army is in Ukraine trying to do that, and they can't do it. Yeah, roughly. Uh, so, so they can't do it. So, yeah. Uh, Putin would love to be able to do that. Hey, Judith in Brooklyn is calling us. Yay. Yay Hi, Judith. Judith. Hi, I'm your comic relief, right? Right. <laughs> Listen, there must be a song like Doug is in charge. Hi, guys. There must Hi. be a song called like Pe- people want to be free, you know, yeah. right? There's a song that people want to be free. It's ridiculous. Of course, these Russians living in Ukraine want to be free. They don't want to be under the thumb of communism and all the crap. But I want to tell you something. As far as uh, Harris goes, she cackled her way up. Okay. She just. <laughs> Cackled her way up, plus a few other few things we won't mention. Cackle, but you know Harris. what? You took, yeah, yeah, C- comrade Cacklehouse. Listen, <laughs> you took away some of my thunder, Dick, because I told your screener two things. One was our Green Berets have been training Ukrainians for quite a few years, and that's why they are doing so well. Yeah, it's our Green Berets that have been helping them over there. Not only that, I was told the Green Berets they know how to speak Ukrainian. They act like them. They look like them. It's unbelievable. Wow, that's that's how great our special forces you know, are. But to, also, I wanted to, yeah. Just to back up and look at this. In World War I, the side that had the biggest population and most soldiers won. And when the U.S. sided with Britain and France, our population dwarfed that of Germany and Germany lost. In World War II, the side with the biggest industrial production of planes and tanks and ships won the war. And we, again, made the difference. Now, it's not the best technology. It's the smartest soldiers in using that technology. It's the best trained and the best equipped and the most knowledgeable military. A lot of the credit for what's going on now with the armed forces belongs to Richard Nixon, who ended the draft and switched to an all-volunteer army. The generals were paralyzed with fear that they wouldn't have enough men They couldn't fill the force, and it turned out that the reason that they couldn't get enough men was they didn't pay them well enough. They were perfectly willing to drag college students out of college, interrupt their careers, and endanger their lives, but they weren't willing to give their own soldiers a little bit of a decent pay. So now they get pretty good pay, free college, free medical care, and we get the best and the brightest in our military, and uh, that's what's showing up now. You know something, Dick? Yeah, here, you know something that you just reminded me also. I wanted to tell you something, two things, so I just added on. These Russian sh- soldiers were given three days' worth of food. Do you understand? Yeah. They were given three days' worth of food, thinking it's going to be a cakewalk and, and it'll be over in not to, even three days. And they've had to sleep in their tanks, which are freezing because they didn't send bedding equipment and tents. I, yeah, right. And I just want to say, Dick, when you opened up, I love the concept of naming specific names responsible yeah. atrocities, like General Blah Blah, who's yeah. responsible. For, I'd love right. to know his name, General I'll, Blah I'll, Blah, I'll, I'll who's learn, responsible I'll for I'll, thing. I'll tell you next week, yeah. absolutely. So thank you, Judith. Love hearing from you. 
It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Let me share a cute story with you. Poor Madeline Albright just died, I think, at the age of 83. And um, before she was Secretary of State, uh, it was clear that the that uh, Clinton would have to appoint a new Secretary of State to begin his second term. And Dick Holbrook, my friend, who negotiated the Bosnian Accords, the so-called Dayton Accords, was absolutely brilliant and wonderful. His death was a severe loss. And um, he wanted to be Secretary of State, and I was supporting him. And um, so he called me and he said, I'm interviewing with Clinton tomorrow. What should I do? And I said, the key to getting along with Bill Clinton is to criticize him in the opening minute of the meeting. If you don't criticize him, he'll listen to you. He'll be nice. He'll smile and everything. But he won't need you. But if you offer a valid criticism that's really important to him, he'll really say, Jesus, I need this guy. And you'll get the appointment. And, you know, I've been dealing with Clinton for 20 years, so I knew how to handle him. And um, so he and his rival was Albright for the job. So he went in to see Clinton. He called me afterwards. Said, oh, it was a fabulous meeting. He was so up. He had just come from a meeting with the Boy Scouts, and he was talking about John Kennedy and everything. It was so cool. And I said, did you criticize him? He said, no, I couldn't bring him down. He was just too high. And I said, you're not getting the job. <laughs> and he said, he said that, and then he said, no, you're wrong. Uh, he said that I was the most qualified candidate for Secretary of State. I said, you idiot, that means he's naming Albright because she's a woman. And he's saying to you, you're the most qualified guy as a sop that you can take home to your grandchildren. And P.S. Albright was was selected, which was really more Hillary's appointment than Bill's because she wanted to have a woman in that in that position. Um, let's go to uh, Phil in Westchester. Hi, Phil. Hey, Dick. Good, good afternoon. And Dougie, what's going on? Hey, Phil. How are you? Great, I, great. I heard, I I heard you play, show. Phil. I heard you play. What's your instrument? Bass. The bass, bass guitar. Yeah, yeah I was at a concert the other day and a jam session. To call that a concert is funny, but it was so cool. You were really good. We're going to go see Marcus Miller in... Uh... Victor Wooten with Dick, too. Yeah. Dick's going to come. One of Doug's skills is that he's a jazz drummer. I don't know about jazz. He's an exceptional jazz drummer. Yeah, he is. So go on with your question, Phil. Okay. So we got to speak yesterday, but I did have one question I didn't get a chance to ask you. And I wanted to know what you feel about how Putin's blaring failure in Ukraine affects China's appetite for invading Taiwan, because it would seem like the global response to Russia would give them a lot of pause to do so at this time. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Phil, and that's a very profound observation. Um, the uh, First of all, we have to all realize that it is not the army that would fight China. It's the Navy, you know, because Taiwan's an island, and uh, that's entirely different order of magnitude. You could make a case that the Chinese army could give the U.S. a, a fight, but uh, not the Navy. And uh, that that's significant. The second thing, so that it's more likely that they'll try to destabilize Taiwan by threatening it and drying up their investments and other stuff, which I don't think is going to work. The second thing is that China has got to be amazed at the solidarity of the world in punishing Putin and going after uh, and going for Ukraine. Um, the solidarity, not just of NATO, but of everybody. I mean, for God's sakes, the one orchestra somewhere con- con- canceled the performance of the 1812 Overture because Tchaikovsky was Russian, <laughs> you know, like 200 years ago. And um, it's it's incredible, this solidarity, and that has to give China major pause. Let's remember one thing about China. It is the most dependent country in the world on the world. Every other country is more independent of the rest of the planet than China is. China is totally dependent on world trade. A third of Chinese economy is based on trade. U.S., it's less than 10%. And if the world ever gets together and says, we're going to embargo Chinese trade, the world will get cold, but China will die of pneumonia. And the 
and and the the chances of that happening are very good because when we put sanctions on Russia, we deny ourselves oil and gas and we all freeze to death. But China does not export energy. It doesn't have enough. So you, you're basically saying we're not going to get computer chips. We're not going to get clothing. We're not going to get all kinds of stuff the Chinese make and we consume. And we can do without those. We can replace those. We saw during the Trump tariffs that we have minor inconveniences in our supply chain. And you can argue a little bit of the inflation is caused by that, but basically not. We basically survived those sanctions without a problem. China went into a total recession. Every economic indicator is down for China, and they're still suffering from it. So China is very vulnerable. You know the line about people in glass houses, and that's really very true here. Let's go to uh, Daniel in the Bronx. Hey, Daniel. Thank you, Phil. Hi, Mr. Morris. Great to speak to you. I love your historical perspective. It's fascinating. My question is, so if there was a treaty between Ukraine and Russia where Russia would recognize Ukraine's sovereignty in exchange, Ukraine would give up its to arsenal. My question is, if, it, if that Ukraine would give up what? Re- Ukra- nuclear d- arsenal? No, Ukraine doesn't have nuclear. It, they it, did that already. It did. Yeah. In 1994. And then sent an treaty. So it, my question is, had Ukraine not given up its nuclear arsenal, had it kept its nuclear weapons, do you think it would have made a difference in light of what has happened recently? Yeah. How do you think things would have played yeah, out? Theoretically, it would have, but Ukraine would be cut in off. In what from way? The, Can you elaborate? Well, Ukraine would have the bomb, but it would uh, it would have alienated the rest of the world. Ukraine couldn't sit there and make itself the third largest nuclear power in the world by borrowing Soviet nukes. Um, Ukraine made the right decision. If they hadn't done that, they would have been frozen out of the global community and themselves become a pariah, which would in a way have made them easier pickings. But thanks for your call. Let's go to Steve in New Jersey. Hey, Steve. Oh, yes. Hi. I'd like to know what your take is on the JCPOA and why uh, Biden is pursuing this relentlessly when this seems like it's just inevitably going to be ensuring that uh, Iran gets the bomb. I, for the life of me, cannot understand it. Uh, I take it on faith that Biden is not a traitor and doesn't want to undermine the United States. But I can't think of any other explanation. Uh, We get nothing from this deal, and we give Iran about $150 billion dollars with which to terrorize the rest of the world. We give them an outright cash payment of $10 billion, that is a hostage payment, a ransom payment for the Americans they're holding in jail. We give them $90 billion of, of uh, trade relief because our sanctions come off. We give them $60 billion in the right to sell oil in today's high-priced market. And we'll be eating that money for lunch every single day as they attack our ships and our troops and our allies and civilians and everything. And what we get in return is that Iran agrees that it will not develop nuclear weapons for like six more years. Oh, yeah, they could be trusted. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, and in six years, the alarm clock goes off. And you know damn well at that point they'll have it if they don't have it before. Mm. It is totally insane. The only motivation I can think of is that he's so beleaguered he wants to have an achievement that he can promote, but some achievement. Oh Let's go to Ralph in New Jersey. Hey, Ralph. Thank you for taking my call, Mr. Morris. Um, you know, there is a poll survey that shows uh, a lot of people disapprove of the way uh, Joseph Biden is handling uh, foreign policy. Yeah. Okay? In particular, the uh, situation in Russia, Europe, and Ukraine. Uh, has, uh, it has something to do with the fact that this man in his, and his foreign policy is like playing with fire, and he set the world on fire. The latest example of that is the no, statement coming out of him from uh, Warsaw, Poland, yeah. when he, he well, has life. That's just stupidity on his part and stumbling. His basic policy is not bad, and uh, and I don't think he's being reckless in the application of it. If anything, he's being too weak and too timid. Thanks for your call. Before I go, I just want to mention something. Joe Manchin said yesterday, uh, maybe today on a talk show, that he is going to support 
$1 trillion in tax increases that Biden wants in his scaled-down Build Back America program, half of which is going to go to climate change technology, which is a waste, but go ahead, half of which will go to reduce the price of prescription drugs, which is a very, very, very dangerous plan. What they're doing is they're basically imposing price controls on drug companies. And what that means is they won't have money for research and development. Uh, Drug companies run a profit of about a third on their transactions. And about half of that third goes for advertising and other nonsense they shouldn't be doing. But half of it goes for research and development. And the reason we have a COVID vaccine, the reason we're not all still hunkering down and facing threats to our lives every time we breathe is because the private sector developed this vaccine. And this virus mutates every hour, it seems. And every time that happens, we have to develop a new vaccine. And if there's no R&D money in the pharmaceutical companies because it's all been taken up to lower the price of certain certain prescriptions, we're going to be in serious, serious trouble. And there's no, no act of politics can deal with that. Now, there's a much simpler answer, which is President Trump took action, for example, to demand that the drug companies lower the prices of insulin. And he did, but then the court ruled it invalid. And we need a law to do that. But you can deal with drug pricing on a selective basis and be very effective. But to cut off R&D funding to our scientists who are straining to keep up with this virus, so every time it mutates, they invent a new vaccine, is totally and completely insane. I hope he's listening to this. Yeah, I hope he is too. And and it's dressed up as why don't we make drug companies bid or compete for, for federal Medicare approval on their prices? Well, but that bid bidding would be fixed by the U.S. government. And there's no way that they'd be able to charge the prices that they need for R&D. I mean, you can hate the corporate sector and you can say they're trying to rip us off and you can resent it. But for God's sakes, don't cut off the scientists that are keeping us alive. Okay, so we talked today about how Russia is basically giving up on Kiev, uh, going into the south of uh, into the Crimea and trying to keep that region. We talked about Biden's absolute incompetence. We do that a lot. He is that a lot. <laughs> he's comfortably numb. Yeah, and he's definitely comfortably numb. Thank you, Dick. You're you're a legend. And your friends, they all come calling. Help you on the back and say, Keep. Hello. Is there anybody in there? Just not if you can hear me. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 